And we're back with another episode of On The Move. I guess this is episode number 10, huh, Joe? Yeah, episode 10, we had Dr. Mark Chrisman. We made it all the way, all the way to number 10. Yeah, and I realized that most of this podcast, I was calling Mark Chrisman, Mark Cushman. So, you know, just have to deal with that. That's fine. I I think, I don't think Mark minded. But, um... Dr. Chrisman is a doctor of veterinary medicine, and we had a great time chatting with him. Great, uh, great stories. Guy's been all over the place, and he's done a lot of stuff, hasn't he? He sure has. Yeah. Uh, it, it was. I mean, that was wild. He's talking about being in Poland when the Berlin Wall was coming down, and uh, the sheiks in Dubai. Just it starts to make you realize you can do a lot of things and get to travel the world. You don't have to, you know, you don't know what you're going to get into when you become a veterinarian or start following that path. Yeah, and and it sounds like he was just kind of a veterinarian by circumstance. Like he, you know, you guys can listen to the podcast and hear the whole story, but he just kind of ended up finding that track. But yeah, um, the one thing I I took away from it though he he got to accomplish those things and and do all that cool stuff because, you know, maybe he didn't have as much direction, but he was just following his passion. You know, he, he said several times, he's like, I I just knew I was, I was interested in this and I liked what I was studying. And then it ended up taking him on an awesome track. And that, that's pretty cool to me. It definitely comes through in the way he talks about it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Um, cause Man, it, it's cool just to hear anyone talk about something with passion, and uh, you. I don't. I haven't heard many people talk about something the way Mark talks about, you know, being a vet and and going and seeing different stuff. So you can tell he's super, super passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. He brings that. It, there's like a a humility and a love of the job, and just a real genuine kindness that they have about them that comes across and. I, I'm looking forward to meeting him at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get you up here and we'll get that done. But I hope you guys uh, hope you guys enjoy it. This is episode 10 with Dr. Mark Chrisman. So do you tell them about the like how they look like fawns? Yeah, that that's why I, we had to. Did, yeah, we had to because they're they're out in a very small paddock during the day, but I lock them up at night because uh, where we live, where our, is out uh, all the way out Mount Tabor Road. Are, are you familiar with Mount Tabor? You know where the winery is out there. We're just a little he, bit. Past I'm not from Georgia. He so where? Oh, you're in Georgia. Well, yeah, I'm He's down in, in Georgia. Like making Georgia right now. Oh my god. This isn't like down the road or. Nothing. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, it's um yeah you're right about the sauna deal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're very rural. We've got about 175 acres mountainside but we've got bear we've got all assortment of wildlife including very uh voracious coyotes and we've heard i didn't i told joe i haven't heard in the last couple nights but prior to that 
they were hooting and hollering, and those two little zebu calves, if they're outside at night, they're like perfect coyote bait. My wife is out of town. If I tell her the coyotes got her two lovely little zebu calves, I I would be coyote bait myself. So where do these miniature yeah. zebus originate from? Well, there's a guy in. Apparently, they're quite a novelty item right now. There's a guy, and he's some. His farm is in Virginia somewhere, but he's got what, according to Celeste, a really nice operation. He's got about 30-some-odd cows, a couple of bulls. Uh, the cows are all sold. The calves are sold before they hit the ground uh, at about three grand a pop. Uh, so, yeah, he's dropping probably 30 of them. Joe did the math pretty quickly. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't cost that much to feed these bloody things. Um, so, anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, it, these are novelty items. Apparently, people are paying big money for them. We have a friend that she bought. Joe knows her well. She bought two miniature Scottish Highlands. It's just people. You can't do anything with them. You can't eat them. You can't milk them. <laughs> you just look at them. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't need anything else to look at, but okay. <laughs> yeah. The miniature world's weird. I, I think that smaller animals are easy easier to anthropomorphize it just there you go it just makes it Good easier word. to bring them in the house and pet them and put blankets around them and yeah so i have to talk to my wife that's probably next about her excessive anthropomorph anthropom <laughs> anthropomorphization i don't know if that's i just added an asian to that um but yeah that's you're right but horse owners do it all the time too oh yeah yeah, they you love know, those they little They anthropomorphize. Well, it's not just a minute. They do it with their own bloody horses, you know. Yeah. They're, it's just, you know. Yeah, have I, you seen I, the little donkey videos where they got the donkey in the house and he carries pillows around and jumps on the couch? and Yeah, and shits all over the place. You might have to edit that out, but yeah. <laughs> nah. but, no, it's no editing. fine. Uh, you know, I'm glad. It's good business for veterinarians, um, but that's what they do. Yeah. So – to give you some context, Ben also rides horses for the public, like similar setup to me okay. down in Georgia. Okay. Um, and, and works for a guy down there who has a Angus operation. Oh, all right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're kind of peach preaching to the choir about the whole anthropomorphizing your horse deal. Yeah. It's yeah. So you understand. <laughs> yeah. That, so that kind of comes up a and lot on here. Yeah. And you know, we forget, which is why we have all these, a lot of these problems. And I, I know when Travis was on, you had a lengthy discussion on laminitis. But if you go back to when horses were horses, yeah, they, they would basically graze about 18 hours a day and travel 20-some miles. Normal, this was bands. Of, like when we go down to Berks, um, to... Um, Racing Highlands, the yeah. miniature ponies up there, which actually they're eating treats from all the hikers on the Appalachian Trail. Um, but uh, that's what they did. And we've totally changed that dynamic, which is one of the reasons we have all these health problems with horses now. Yeah. 
a long and you guys had a lengthy discussion on laminitis. I was impressed that Travis was bringing up the matrix metalloproteases, but that's one part. That's one domino in the whole cascade of events. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we've done that. This domestication has messed horses up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean you guys should stop what you're yeah. doing. Uh, just, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying turn your horses out on a thousand acres and then get them every day, but it's we we just forget those things. Sure. You know? So, anyway, yeah. So that's a good. Just so people who like started listening, um, you're Mark Chrisman. Uh, yes. DVM. Today, just today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, DVM. So you. Um, you were practicing veterinary medicine for a long time. Correct. And now you work for Zoetis? Correct, but I'm still I'm still doing veterinary medicine. So okay. I'll just get, if you want, I'll just kind of give you a synopsis. So after I finished vet school, and this is could be a source or a subject of another whole podcast, but I, I went to vet school at the University of Warsaw in Poland. It was more by accident than design. Uh, I was over there. I was in graduate school at the University of Kentucky. I was finishing a master's, and I was thinking about starting a PhD, and my major professor said, Mark, what are you going to do with this? What were you studying? I was in pharmacology. What's pharmacology? Pharmacology (laughs) is basically the study of drugs and the drug interactions in the body. Okay. Basically. Gotcha. So farm with a PH. Far, right. Not, okay. not, not that, not the F A R M O L O G Y. It's yeah. PH. So pharmacology. I gotcha. Um, and uh, so this guy, he was a crazy Irishman, really cool guy. Good. He was a good mentor. Uh, he, um, Tom Tobin, and his name, he, wrote, he had written a bunch of books about drugs in the performance horse, drugs in the racehorse. He was. In, this was in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, at University of Kentucky. And he, um, he worked with the racing commissions and basically all these performance horses and racehorses that have to be drug tested. That all mm. went through his lab. So he was obviously well in tune to that. But, you know, he asked a very legit question. What are you going to do with these degrees? Do you want to, you know, are you going to? go for industry? What, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I really hadn't thought about that. I didn't know. I just liked going to school. Plus, I will tell you at that point, the parental national bank that was, well, I, I had a stipend when I was in graduate school, but, you know, obviously I was still checking in with the parental national bank. Sure. You, you know what that is, Joe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Could you expound so on that for me? What's that? The the parental national bank is that like that, parents basically paying that's, for you to go to school. That, that's it. Yes, that's gotcha. you're, you're. I have a lot of strange terminology that I made up, um, but yeah, it's not Bank of America. It's well, the I, I had the bank, bank of the bootstraps, and you had to pull okay, real hard. Okay, well, yeah, there <laughs> I'm you still go. Pulling. That's it. That's a that's a, a legitimate bank. Yeah. Um, we'll have a glossary at the end of the okay, episode. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll define all these terms. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he suggested, uh, Dr. Tobin suggested that I take a year's leave of absence. And he said, why don't you travel around, get some of the crap out of your system, and figure out what you want to do. And I said, well, that sounds like a cool idea. Do you have any 
idea of what I want to do. He said, let me think about it for a day or two. And at the same, right about that time, 60 Minutes had done um, one of their episodes, one of their investigative things. Yeah, one of their segments. And this was in, I will tell you, this was 1978. Uh, I don't think either one of you were around at that time. Uh, But it was uh, was an interesting time. But, you know, he said, so... Basically, so, oh, oh, sorry about that. No, I got, I scared myself. Yeah. Basically, 60 Minutes had done this program on students of Polish descent returning to Poland for a year uh, on this exchange program where you would learn the language and you would, uh, you know, learn the customs and the traditions and the history. And it was in Kraków or Krakow, if I anglicize it. Uh, which is uh, the Jagiellonian University, which was the third oldest university in Europe. Um, Copernicus was one of their alumni. I was disappointed he never showed up for any of the alumni parties. Would have liked to meet the dude. Um, so anyway, but it's definitely a medieval city. So I, I, you know, I looked into it and I said, that's really cool. I said, the one problem is I don't have any Polish descent i have everybody's got a polish uncle i have zero polish blood in me so i don't qualify for this program and dr tobin he said well he's just hang tight he said his wife was polish yeah and her one of her best friends was the scientific attache in the embassy in washington so marisha his wife called up and said i've got this american guy here he's interested in the i got a back step here for a second um one of the reasons it was intriguing to me was my family raised Arabian horses. And Poland, uh, there's, there's two main sources of Arabs that are in the U.S. today. Poland and Egypt are the two main. But I was intrigued because we had some Polish Arabians. And I thought, well, that might be an interesting little sideline that I could look into when I'm over there. So anyway, long story short, uh, or I'll try to shorten it. Um, they accepted me into the program. I took off in, this was August of 78, flew into Warsaw. I did not know a single word of Polish. Zero. Uh, Holy cow. <laughs> zero. Like you talking about like just getting dropped in a foreign country and not knowing a single word. Uh, so I made it down to Krakow, uh, and there were, it was truly, it was an international thing. There were a bunch of other Americans there. There were Canadians. There were lots of Norwegian Swedes. I mean, there were people from all over the world that were in this exchange program and we go to class every day and the instructors would not speak to us in English at all. So you were kind of forced to learn the language. If you're a young male, there's a couple of things that will force you to learn the language of the country that you're dropped into. Do you guys want to take a shot at two things that are really important to a young male to learn the language of the country? Yeah, probably. Take a shot there, Beth. Yeah, I'm thinking something like, um, you know, you got to ask where the bathroom is. Something simple like that. Yeah. Uh, reading, yeah. reading the program at church or something. Yeah, like that. No, and, and where like the Bibles no. are passed out. 
I would, I would yeah, think. Yeah, okay. You guys are really good gentlemen. And I then know. maybe, <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Where the girls are. Ooh. That might come yeah, in okay. somewhere. In, but so, I don't know. Women and booze? Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Women and booze? Women, booze, and vodka was very available over there. But it was basically, I'll say, it was food and, and girls. Those food are, and so, girls. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Even more so, primal. So, like, in Europe, in Europe, they've got the, if you can reach it, you can have it, right, in most places, as far as booze? Yeah. So, with yeah. girls, what's the rule there? Is it like if they'll take you, um, you can have them? or? <laughs> No, they they were intrigued by Americans. They liked Americans a lot, uh, but y- you had to be conversational to a degree. So in Polish, my, in Polish, yeah. Mm. They, now a lot of them spoke, but most of them, they a lot of them, they didn't speak a lot of English. So anyway, so during the course of this year, we would take we would have like one or two week blocks every quarter where we could go off and do something on our own. I mean, they were approved, but, you, you know, you could go into the country. I had a good buddy who was, he was actually a lawyer um, at, uh, he went to Bolt. He was top shelf lawyer, and he was, had Polish descent. He was Jewish, and he just, he took off and traveled with a band of gypsies for two weeks. I mean, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you could do all kinds of stuff. But one of the things I wanted to do was obviously get on these Arabian farms. So the first farm I went to was called Yanov Podlaski. It's a, it's a, one of the oldest Arab farms in Europe, and it was right on the Russian border. So I show up there. They put me in a dorm room, and I'm just I, I want to see you know what their husbandry practices are, how they manage these horses, how basically things are done over there, and. Trust me, it's very different than the way things are done over here. But there was a gentleman there that was doing a research project. Now, I mentioned I already had a master's. I was really interested in research. So I strike up a conversation, and I end up spending two weeks with this guy, helping him with this project that he was working on. And I found out during the course, first off, his English was flawless. Perfect. So I just you know, just fell back into my, into the English language. Um, he had just come back from Cornell. He was, and he, it turned out he was the dean of the vet school in Warsaw. And he, he, we got along really well. And he said, so on your next little two week trip, why don't you come up to Warsaw and spend a couple of weeks at the vet school? I said, all right, I didn't have anything planned. I said, giddy up, let's go. So the next rotation, I went up to the vet school in Warsaw and uh, spent two weeks. And at the end of that period, now, the Europeans, their higher education is a little different than what we do here in the U.S. They, when they graduate from high school, they're about at the equivalent of a freshman in college here. So they've already had calculus, some of the basic chemistries. So and what they do is they take an exam, all the high school students that want to go to university, because university over there is free like a lot of European countries, something we don't have here or appreciate here. Uh, But there is a ranking system. So basically everybody lists what college or career they want to go into. So if it's medicine or engineering or whatever, then they rank and they just pull the people with the highest scores. The people with the lowest scores go into the military. So let's just say there is a lot of incentive to do well on these exams. Yeah. Um, but he said, you can take the exam, he said, but you've already got like six years of university. He said, the exam is not going to be hard for you. 
So took the exam, passed it, um, and I got in. And he said, okay, now I haven't told my parents any of this yet. But I love the country. The people were great. I just, it was great. I could now speak to the women. I knew how to get alcohol. I mean, it was, yeah, it was like. <laughs> you were set. I was set. And it was really cheap to live over there, really inexpensive. If you had American dollars, it was very inexpensive. Hmm. And the other thing, it was communist, too. And I, you guys, I don't know. Yeah, because it would have still been. It was. St- it was. 78, communi- yeah, right? It was. The, hmm. the Berlin Wall came down in 90, 91. 90 so, or, yeah. yeah, it was either 90 or 91 when Gorbachev and it was. Oh, and the other thing that was interesting was like the first couple of days I was in Krakow, all of a sudden, like all the church bells are ringing and people are in the streets and they're crying and going crazy. And I said, what is going on? Pope John Paul II, who was Polish, uh, was I don't I guess you're elected pope. Um, and his, he was Polish and his church was in his main church was in Krakow in Krakow. So Pete, and I'm like, well, this is weird because you're communist. Well, they're Catholic first. They're Catholic way before they're communist. They did. And this is, I'll get way off track here, but they hated the Russians. And this is, this is centuries of hatred very similar to what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. This is because they have fought literally for centuries. So there's this this inbred hatred for the Russians. At the time, it was the Soviet Union, of which Poland was a part, but probably 3% of the population was in the Soviet, in the Communist Party, and the other 97% were Catholic. Um, so there were all these funny, these peculiar events that were going on, um, but you know, I just, from a historical and a socio political side, it was, I, I thought it was all very interesting. And yeah, I should absolutely. preface this that I grew up in Woodstock, New York, if that gives you any indication of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so anyway, I did tell my parents, uh, they were shocked and into disbelief, but I said, look, I, I like it over there. I mean, I just love the country. It was beautiful. They had beautiful horses. The people were awesome. And so off I went to vet school. Now, the interesting thing about vet school there was, uh, now my Polish was good uh, at this point, uh, but vet school was, they taught in Latin. I mean, it was Latin. Now. I didn't say prior to that that I had had six years or seven years of Latin. I went to a private school, and then I even took some at university. So that was cool. I said, yeah, I mean, I the Latin I understood. So they spoke Latin. They spoke Latin in the scientific terminology. So all the terminology for everything medical was in Latin. The textbooks, everything when they got to a specific disease or a, an And why anatomy. was that? Old school. I mean, it was that. So why did anyone make that decision in the first place? Because it had been that way forever. I mean, so let me give you a couple of examples. I had some friends here that Americans that were in medical school there. When they would do rounds in front of the patients, they would speak Latin Hmm. because they didn't want the patients to know what they were discussing. Very weird. Yeah, Fauci should do that more. Yeah, <laughs> good point. A lot of those good guys. Good point, Ben. A lot of those guys. Yeah, so, but other things were like, 
you know, after going to university for so many years in the U.S., when I was over there, it was when a professor walked in the room, everybody stood up. Mm. That stuff doesn't happen here. He'd turn around yeah. to lecture. You'd all sit down. If a professor walked down the hallway, you did not turn your back on him. You had to turn around and face. If you were talking to friends or whatever in a hallway, yeah. you had to turn around and face him. Like you're at the Naval Academy it like, or something. Kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like a military thing. Um, exams, this was the other interesting thing, and I, it took me a little while to get used to this, but you would have your regular you know, hourly exams at certain intervals. All that did, if you passed the exams, would qualify you to take the final. The final exam was oral. You got dressed up in a suit and a tie, and you went in, and it was usually one professor and typically two students, and he'd just light the fire and start grilling you. And it was... If you, yeah, obviously they had your attendance record and your all your your exam scores. If you were a marginal student, they would just basically find the spike and drive it into your heart. I mean, I saw people <laughs> would come out crying. I'd come out, you'd sweat through a suit anyway. So that was the school, and I loved it. During the course of that, when I was kind of between, I was in my uh, third year. It was a five-year program. Um, that was, and you guys probably, do you guys know what Solidarity was? Mm -mm. Solidarity, Lech Wałęsa, the electrician at Gdańsk. This was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. Mm. It was basically the Poles okay. stood up and spit in the face of the Russians. Um, also behind this, this very anti-Soviet movement uh, was Ronald Reagan was the president and John Paul was the Pope. So it was driven by Reagan, the Pope, and the Polish people. They just said, we've had enough of the Russians. It was crazy. There were strikes. There were riots. It was insane. I finally left the country. Basically, I, I drove out. Uh, most of the Americans had already left, but I just thought it was really cool to watch this whole social event take place. Um, they... Uh, so I went out. The universities were closed because the students were obviously very active. I came back to the U.S., waited for the universities to open up again, which they did in February of the following the next year. This started in the fall. And um, went back, finished up. I was doing my senior project, and I was looking at uh, my project was looking at immune deficiencies in Arabian horses. Uh, do you hmm. guys familiar with CID, combined immunodeficiency? I'm not. I'm not, no. Uh, do, are you guys familiar with the bubble kids? No, yeah. I'm not. Okay. The bubble, these are people that it's a, a rare disease. It's in humans, and the only other species that it's in are Arabian horses. It's a genetic disease <laughs> where they basically have no immune system. Ergo, the bubble kids. Yeah. That's why they have to live uh, in a bubble. It would be Arabs. Yeah, and it would be <laughs> Arabs. That's exactly right. It would. So I was interested to see if any of that was in the Polish Arabians. Huh. So I needed some money to, you know, I needed to, I, I was collecting blood from all the foals that were born. And they, there was probably, they probably only foal out in the country, probably less than 300 foals a year. But hmm. the Americans would come over and pay top dollar for them. So it was a major export for them. Um, so 
anyway, I the, the guy that was doing that actually identified the whole CID, the combined immunodeficiency issue, was a, a gentleman named uh, Lance Perryman, who was at Washington State University. So it was Perryman and Travis McGuire was his co co-collaborator on this thing. And they'd written a lot of papers and textbook chapters, and it was an interesting disease. Um, and they were trying to use the Arab as a model for, you know, how can we help the people that have this, the bubble kids. That makes sense. So I sent him a note, a letter, because, uh, gentlemen, I did not, we did not have internet at that time. Um, so I sent him a, a handwritten letter. Do you, do you guys know what that is? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> um, and I got a response back, like, really quickly. Um, and he said, can you get me into Poland? And, and I, I, I'm thinking, yeah. He said, I, I have been able to do surveys in England, Australia, the United States, and Europe. I cannot get into Poland. And I think part of it was that if he found something bad, if we found this with this project that it might hurt their export business. So he said, can you get me into Poland? I said, I'm pretty sure I can. Went to my friend, the Dean, mm -hmm. who went through a bunch of hurdles and got him a visa to get in really quickly. So he and his wife, who was also Polish, interestingly, um, she was like first generation. She, her, she was born in the U.S., but her parents okay. were Polish. Um, he came over and spent about two weeks uh, there we traveled around the country, went to the farms, did, you know, touristy stuff. And at the end of that little episode, he said, Mark, would you be interested in coming? This was between my, essentially my junior and senior year. He said, would you be interested in coming and working in my lab in the summer in Washington state? And I actually already had a job lined up at Utrecht, which is a big veterinary school in uh, the Netherlands, really good school. And I was kind of anxious to do that. Um, new types of alcohol and new interesting Dutch women. Um, you can delete that out. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. So, <laughs> no way, Mark um, Cushman. But, you know, I, you know, I thought about it and I said, you know, it'll probably be time because I'm going to graduate and I need to get, I'm obviously going to come back to the U.S. So I went back, spent a summer working in his lab, which was awesome. At the end of that, he said, why don't you think about um, applying to an internship and a residency? So I, I don't know if you guys, how the how this works, but in vet school, unlike medical school, when you finish your veterinary degree, you can just go out and put your shingle up and start practicing. Oh, okay. But if you want to, so in medical school, you that. have to do an internship and then a residency and then you do a fellowship or whatever if you want to specialize. If you want to specialize in veterinary medicine, you have to do an internship and a residency in whatever surgery, medicine, ophthalmology, cardiology, any one of the specialties, um, which is another three years. That, that whole, the internship and the residency is usually three or four years more on top of your veterinary degree. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Anyway, he said, had you thought about doing an internship? And I said, I, you know, I've thought about it because I'm really not, still not sure exactly what I want to do, um, which is not what, surprising. What, four, four years later? Uh, well, yeah, five years. I was actually, with counting the year of the language program, I was in Poland. I was in Europe for six years. 
Oh, wow. Now, some of it was a hardship, like uh, Christmas break, I'd ski in the Alps. Spring break, I'd go down to Greece. I mean, yeah, it kind of sucked. <laughs> Not really. Um, so anyway, I applied for the internship. Surprisingly, I got it. Uh, I was a little shocked because usually they take their, they, they'll have like 70 applicants for one position. Hmm. At Washington State at the time, if you wanted to do equine, was the place to go. Hmm. But they would get, you know, the number one in their class from Cornell or Penn or Colorado or whatever. And here you got a kid coming from the University of Warsaw. Uh, but I think I'm quite confident Lance Perryman put in a really good word for me. And actually, that was the first year they took me and they took a girl from Australia. So they took two foreigners that year. Gotcha. The and foreigner he, from New York. The foreigner from New York, <laughs> but foreign degree. Right, right. So um, that probably looks good in front of certain people. Well, in some, but you know, there's, you know, you're going to take number one from Cornell or some kid out of Warsaw. They're like, well, we know what Cornell does, you know. Yeah. So it was a bit of an unknown for them. But Lance, basically, I'm sure he wrote me a very good letter. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's it. That went, uh, I did the internship, stayed, and did a residency in equine internal medicine. I'm boarded in internal medicine. And what that means is you just take a nasty exam and, and uh, another nasty exam. And uh, when I finished my residency, I'm still like, what am I going to do? Yeah. I mean, I could go into practice. Uh, I could have done any number of things, but there was this position opened up at uh, the Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, and my family was from the East Coast. So this was the first time in 10 years I was going to be back on the East Coast. I was very excited. I told my parents, I said, I'm really excited. Guess what? I'm, I'm moving back to Virginia. And we had relatives in Virginia. And they said, that's really great. We just sold the farm in New York, and we're moving to Arizona. See you later. Uh, I said, okay. Uh, so um, anyway, so I said, you know, I, that's when I came to Virginia, and that was in 1988-87, I think. Y you guys were born by then? No. No. No, no I was born okay. in 1997. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, guys, wow. And I was ninety-five. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, well. Yeah, we I, let you guys handle all that. No sense <laughs> okay. in coming around then. Sounds like you yeah, had your hands really. full. Well, We've just you, been coasting. You wanted us to just mess things up really, really nicely yeah. for you guys, so you could try to fix it. So anyway, so I stayed. I was at the university. Loved the university job. It was my dream job because I was on. I worked in the teaching hospital. I lectured students. I had students in the, that were doing their rotations in the hospital, and I had a very active lab. We did a lot on molecular biology. Uh, so it was kind of, you know, I had three things um, that I was doing, which basically kept me out of trouble uh, for the most part. Uh, and, uh, and then in 2010, I had been, well, I was a tenured full professor. I you know, I really loved the job, but I had been doing consulting for Pfizer, for Pfizer Animal Health, and they came knocking on my door and said, uh, we would like you to come work for us full time. And I said, excuse me, I said, are you crazy? I said, I'm a tenured professor. I can just like 
sit in my office now and think lofty thoughts and smoke a pipe and wear one of those jackets with the leather patches yeah. on the elbow. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but they kept after me. And finally, now I was married at this time, by this time, just as a side note, I didn't get married till I was 45, which was another really good decision that I made. Um, <laughs> Joe knows my wife. I married a, a great woman, but she's tough. And I hope she's not going to listen to this, but she will agree. She is very tough. She tried to train me and she's failed. So she's really good with training horses and dogs and she's given up on me. Uh, but um, uh, so anyway, they kept after me and finally, and she, Celeste, my wife, was she was working at the university at the time. Actually, did you, did you know her when she was in the College of Ag? Yeah. 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 Because I, um, yeah. I feel like the first, well, I like knew of Celeste, but it, it would have been when I was in high school that I really started like interacting with you guys. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she was still doing like that in the 4-H deal. Correct. Like, she was very involved. So yeah, she ran actually the 4-H program for the state of Virginia. Yeah. Um, but uh, so when they came knocking on, when Pfizer came knocking on my door about the third time, uh, I said, all right, I've got a few criteria that if I do come to work for you, these are things that I'm not going to compromise on. One, I'm not moving from Blacksburg. I said, my wife is teaching at the university, so we're not going to move. And they said, they said, okay, that's fine. I said, number two, I'm going to keep a position at the university. And they said, that's good because we would like you to keep a position at the university. And I think that's one of the reasons they hired me was that I had all these university, these academic connections. Um, and I said, the third thing you're not going to like, uh, I said, but I'm not going to drink your corporate Kool-Aid. In other words, I don't sell anything. I, I said, I, if I see something that is not right or I don't believe in it, I will bring it to your attention. And they said, perfect. We don't, you're not here to sell anything. You, so, yes, I, they agreed to all those stipulations. Uh, and um, that was in 2010. I said, I'll give you 10 years because I was going to retire. And um, I think Joe knows this. I've been trying to retire for a couple of years now, but they keep sweetening the pot. So I said, all right, I don't know how long you guys want to play this game. But anyway, the the... the the job at the at at Nat, well, let me go back for a second. So Pfizer Adam, Pfizer was is a ginormous company. It, it's huge. So I started in 2010. In 2013, they spun off their animal health division, which is now Zoetis. So I just obviously we all went with the spinoff, and Zoetis is now the largest solely animal health company in the world uh so we've got ten thousand employees i don't know what their but their budget is i mean they it's a billion billions dollar company um and uh so yeah they're basically all over the world what i do for them is not that different than what i did at the university so i teach a lot of classes a lot of continuing ed classes for veterinarians we still have a lot of research projects, so I'm involved in all these products for, or projects and ultimately products for new drugs. Um, 
and uh, I don't practice medicine in the hand of what equine veterinarians do, which is put a big sleeve on and palpate horses. Um, so, uh, but I consult. So I, what I do is when I travel around the country, if a practice is having an issue or a concern or a problem or challenging cases, as an internist, they call me, they call me up and I help them solve their problems. There are seven equine veterinarians in my group with Zoetis. Um, we have a surgeon, we have another internist on the West Coast, we have a theriogenologist, which is a veterinarian that specializes in reproduction. Hmm. Uh, so we're all specialists in like little different areas. We're and now actually hiring a new person that's going to be uh, probably a surgeon. And um, these are all equine. They're all, this is all equine. Gotcha. So, and we're actually the, probably the smallest division in the, in the animal health thing. They've got, they've got a, a an aquatic, a fish division. They've got their companion animal division. They must have hundreds oh. of veterinarians. Yeah, I was going to say, companion I they have animal. an army. Cattle. Uh, probably has 50 veterinarians that are spread around the country. Uh, so we're small, but we are hugely profitable, hugely profitable. And I, I'll get killed on this podcast if I reveal any corporate secrets. But if you guys have horses and understand what it costs, and Ben, you work with cattle, so you know what a cattle vaccine costs. Yeah. You want to give me a shot? couple bucks uh yeah i mean quite a bit we just gave a scours um vaccine this past weekend and i mean we had two 50 milliliter vials that were 260 bucks a piece and we were given two mil shots a piece so we, we there you spent go. a couple bucks a couple bucks a shot yeah easy and that was zoetis yeah that was so that was, edits, yeah, yeah, most of our, they you really, could go in our, our everything so edits pretty much that we have. Yeah, and they really, they, they they do a good job. So it's it's interesting because it was Pfizer, but Pfizer bought Fort Dodge Animal Health, which was kind of one of the big equine ones before. There mm. were a bunch of other companies that Pfizer was just basically, they were like a giant macrophage. Do, do you guys know what a macrophage is? I don't. It's a no cell expand. that yeah. basically it's part it's part of our defense mechanisms. It's a really important part of our defense mechanisms. And when a foreign invader, a virus, a bacteria, whatever, invades the body, macrophages are one of the first lines of defense. They just go in what we call phagocytose or engulf it and kill the organism. Gotcha. Pfizer was a big macrophage. They would just go suck up all these companies. Uh, and incorporate them into the Pfizer doctrine. Uh, anyway, I got off track here. Uh, so uh, anyway, so that's basically what I do. And so the new uh, position we're hiring is for regenerative medicine. And are you guys familiar with PRP, platelet-rich plasma, a little prostride? Bit. I hear a lot about it, yeah, but I, I don't know much at all. It's, but I just I hear that a lot it's lately. All, it's the, the, the regenerative medicine. So in the past— if a horse was lame or had an issue, veterinarians loved steroids. They're cheap. They were a good anti-inflammatory. And they would basically quiet the inflamed joint down. But there were no 
regenerative. There were no growth factors in it. So all these regenerative medicine technologies are what we call autologous. So in other words, they take the horse's blood and this is a big deal in human medicine now too, where they'll take your blood and it goes through a series of centrifugation where they'll spin it down with special filters and stuff in it. And for example, ProStride, which is kind of the class act of these regenerative medicine technologies, and it's approved, it's, they use it in humans. It's approved for use in humans. So they'll pull, in horses, we pull about 60 mils of blood, dogs, 30 mils, humans, 30 mils, but horses obviously are bigger and they don't miss 60 mils of blood. And it goes through these series of steps. And what you end up with is a very rich, uh, concentrated environment of platelets, white blood cells, uh, basically lymphocytes, all these cells, and we inject them back into the body, okay? So they put them back in joints, back in tendons. And there's two things in there. So uh, I don't know how much of the science you want me to get into it, but for joint disease, interleukin-1 beta and tumor necrosis factor are the bad actors. They're the ones that cause all the inflammations in joints, which ultimately ends up in osteoarthritis, which people get, horses get, dogs get. Basically, any mammal that's ambulatory is going to at some point is going to end up with arthritis. Not all, but a lot of them. Ambulatory, I mean, walks around. Walking. Yeah, yeah, anything that's, and we we all move, right? Yep. You're moving right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're putting a cool beverage to your mouth. Bending an elbow, yeah. 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 (laughs) So, uh, but what, so uh, as I mentioned, the steroids calm down the, so osteoarthritis is this tumor necrosis factor, this interleukin-1 beta, these two bad actors, and they're the ones that continue the destruction. Eventually, it destroys the cartilage, and you end up with bone on bone, which mm. essentially means you're you're crippled. You've got arthritis, so you end up taking a lot of non-steroidals. You get more steroid injections. There's no coming back from it, essentially. What the regenerative medicine does is in that cocktail, that soup that I told you about of very concentrated cells, it's got two things in it that uh, well, it's got a bunch of things in it, but two of the things are what we call IL-1 receptor antagonists. So it's interleukin-1, but it binds to the receptor. So it stops the bad actor, the IL-1 beta, from actually binding to that receptor. So it's a, it stops that. It's got these soluble TNF tumor necrosis factors in it that stop the TNF. So right there, it kind of hammers two main bad actors, but it's also got a whole host of growth factors in it. Insulin-like growth factor, it's got alpha-2 macroglobulin, it's got all these this good stuff. So not only does it stop the degenerative processes, but it also helps with the regenerative processes. So helping build back that joint to something healthy. So there was a study, they used this, the first study that looked at this particular is ProStride, which we call autologous protein solution. And that's the other thing that gets people really confused. And it gets veterinarians confused because there's PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma, which is another form. It Mm -hmm. doesn't have exactly everything that uh, ProStride or autologous protein solution has in it, but it's got a lot of good stuff. And that was kind of first generation. IRAP, have you heard of IRAP? No, no. Okay. 
Uh, these things have been around for probably a decade, and it really has helped horses a lot. But then this autologous protein solution came out, this what we call APS or ProStride. Uh, it was developed by a German company, BioZimmermet, and they were using it in humans. Uh, and it was approved for use in humans in Europe, Japan, and Canada. But in 2014, 2013, they wanted, there were some researchers at Ohio State, uh, um, for anybody in the audience, the Ohio State, because you have to put the definitive article in front of it. I don't know if they're insecure <laughs> or what. Um, but uh, they, they put it into uh, a group of horses. I think there were probably 40 horses in this study. And the results were really good. I mean, they yeah. were quite good. They, these horses stayed sound for a year. Um, the one problem with that particular study was that it was a lot of qualitative data, meaning when you look at data for, in a scientific publication, you've got two main branches. You've got quantitative, which is numbers. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. what, what You want to see numbers, okay? You want to see hard data that is that's got real numbers attached to it with some very good right. technology. It's like subjective versus objective. Correct. Yep. Thank you, Joe, for translating that. <laughs> the, the subjective side or the, uh, the qualitative side, which is what this study did, basically the horse owners evaluated their horses over a year. So they looked at them at, uh -oh. you know, are they comfortable at rest? Are they comfortable walking in the pasture? Are they comfortable being ridden? And I'm sure you guys both know, as trainers, you understand that, um, well, how do I say this politely? I, I used to say veterinarians are like pediatricians, human pediatricians. It's basically your clients can't talk to you and the owners lie or the parents lie. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know, you can yeah. take that for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they, um, they just came out with a study that was done in Europe. It was a three-year study in humans yeah. that got ProStride injected. They all had the same osteoarthritis in their knee. Uh, they were getting MRIs. They, were get, they got a lot of hard, objective data out of these guys and out of these participants in this study. And they were still sound, happy, and moving after three years of one injection. So the moral of the story is we're trying to get veterinarians to move away from steroids and steroids still have their place. I mean, we use them a lot. Mm -hmm. Your dad uses them on, on Mater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I, I've encouraged, I mean, he's using a very low dose on yeah. him and he just does it before he rides. But a lot of these horses are on very chronic, chronic doses of steroids, which like I said, is a dead end road. Yeah. Uh, so um, so that's kind of where a lot of this, uh, when we talk about regenerative medicine and osteoarthritis, a lot of it is moving into that kind of regenerative zone, mm -hmm. uh, where we not only want to stop the inflammation, but we want to promote healing at the same time. So this study that came out and it was like the, the journal of sport, it was a really very well, uh, uh, high impact factor, a very well-known journal. Uh, so in other words, to get a publication in there, you've got to have basically every, it, it wasn't published in the journal of dubious results. Gotcha. Let me put it that way. It was a really well-known journal. So, and, and in the interim, there have been a ton of studies out there 
I would just caution people because the companies will sponsor a lot of these studies. Yeah. Mm. I, I always looked at them as a bit biased um, because the companies are paying them money and, I, you know, they try, they obviously have to maintain some scientific integrity, but the you gotta maintain a relationship. Uh, well, you got to make, right. You've got, well, so in academia, there is this mantra of publish or perish. Uh, so if you've got a pharma company throwing money at you, uh, you, you're going to be a good guy. So, I, and I'm not <laughs> saying you can't distrust the results. I always just look at it with a bit of a, with a little bit of a jaded eye, uh, where again, like this, this study that in the, the human side in, in, it was not funded by a pharma company. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyway, they're. So if it's independent, independent researchers that are comparing all these different modalities, like they compare IRAP with ProStride, with PRP, with any of all these other modalities. And again, those are the ones that I trust the results on those. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, Ben, that's who Mark is. Oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> that was... Ben, you, you were catching a little nap in there, I think. As soon as I mentioned Bubble Kids, I lost you. Well, and I got to tell you, um, man, I so I got, not to go way off track, but I got Invisalign put in last Thursday, and those son of a bucks, they mount these points in your mouth, and they chip my tooth while they were doing it. And if any nice. of them are listening, I'll see them tomorrow at 945, but my teeth hurt <laughs> like a bugger right now. And, but I'm good. Uh, I'm waiting for the, uh, the leave to kick in. But um, but well, and you look like you're medicating in other ways too. I was gonna say. Yeah. yeah well, I tried that, but, it, but the cold is not helping, so I quit medicating that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I bet. I well, bet. a leave with some warm bourbon. That is actually one of my go-to's. So yeah. yeah. Actually, and he's a doctor. Yeah, and <laughs> what I've up. been actually, this is a shocking. If you you went off track, and I I got all kinds of tales off track, but. One of the things my and Joe knows this. My wife, um, they she's part of a company. She's actually on the board for CBD oil. Do you guys? I'm sure you have heard of CBD. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have. Okay. That is definitely in the conversation uh, these days. Not like our conversations, but yeah, I, I listen to a lot of stuff. Yeah. And it's so big. it's crazy, and I know some people. But anyway, long story short, I you you probably know. I mean, it was probably. Oh, it's 2013, so it was nine years ago. I just, I did, and I'm going to reference this as st stupid white guy crap. Uh, I ticked <laughs> off three boxes very quickly. One, I was in a big rush. Two, I was helping my neighbor. And three, I was on the top of an eight-foot ladder in the barn that I had not pulled out to its proper stance oh. i just threw it up against the side of a stall i was uh, he had borrowed a dog kennel from me anyway long story short i f i fell off the bloody ladder landed on a cement floor my cat-like agility made me land on my feet and i fractured my calcaneus bone which is the bone in your heel mm. which the surgeon told me he said well you know he said there's two breaks for old white guys that are really bad uh, your neck and your calcaneus bone. Oh, son of a gun. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I was, I had to, I had to be off, non-weight-bearing. I could not put the foot on the ground for three months. Ultimately, I ended up with arthritis in that ankle. Mm. That's when you were, like, 
cruising in on that like super had, jacked up golf cart you had. I had a golf cart. I had one of those little wheelie, <laughs> those little three wheel tricycle things. Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to travel, but I, I would go to the grocery store and do shopping and get one of those little beep beep carts and, you oh, know, yeah. yeah, which was fun. So Kaylee just got one of those, uh, when we were traveling this past weekend, she got one in Walmart cause you know, she had her foot surgery a while back. And Did people make fun of her? Well, we were in a Walmart in Charleston, West Virginia. Oh, so, so she didn't care. Or they, they, they thought she people, was like, No, yeah, that was kind of par for the course. Yeah, that was, we yeah I was going to say that. It's funny, yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, about two years ago, I just started taking CBD oil. I sleep like a baby at night, and I, I literally take no NSAIDs anymore. It's crazy. That's I awesome. mean, it's yeah. So I don't know if it affects everybody. Uh, you know, it's a little different. Depends on where you get the CBD. You know, if it's full spectrum, there's a whole host. There. And they're still the scientists are still trying to sort out uh, all these cannabidiol receptors that are in your body. Yeah. Uh, but it definitely has some beneficial effects. Yeah. So people are giving it to horses. People are giving it to their dogs. Uh, you know, as kind of an anti-anxiety thing, you know, for there's lots of different reasons. They're still trying to unravel the mystery of these receptors. Uh, but it helps me tremendously. That's so awesome. I'm wondering where mine is right now. So you guys, well, you guys are go probably some... get tossed off horses periodically. Mm. Yeah, you'll, you, there's going to be some point yeah, you're going to be knocking on often. my door saying, I don't know about hey, Joe, dude, but... I need, to... Joe doesn't get tossed at all, I don't think. Oh, no, I, I go into the ground like a fence post every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, tr- um, we try to yeah. avoid that. Yeah. For the most part. If I do come off, I try to make a point to never come off for that reason again. Yeah. Yeah, come off uh, for a new that's reason. That's kind of the best. Yeah. I'll, I'll come off for a different reason every now and then. Yeah, I've, I've come well, off. Well, you know. Times. You know, Ben, Joel Connor, he, he says if you haven't come off a couple times, you're really not you're really not trying that hard. <laughs> yeah, well that's what that's what Tom Brady said though too. If you're not cheating, you're not trying about yeah, trying. Okay. Well, anyway, so I don't know if I would take, you know, there's more ways than one to see if somebody's trying. But but I guess I, yeah. I just think if you keep getting bucked off a lot. I don't know. You could yeah, get a seatbelt. Yeah, if you belt. get bucked off a lot. We're talking to Chad. I, mean, about saddle. I really think that someone ought to get themselves a seatbelt because I think getting bucked off yeah, is a commitment issue. Yeah, we had a issue. saddle maker on here two, oh, really? two episodes ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, and we were trying to convince him to put – Ben and I both are in line for him to make – he's a custom saddle guy, and we were trying to convince him to put a seatbelt in our saddles. But Well, yeah. or for other people. He, I, he didn't. Th- yeah, I, I think other people. Yeah, I mean, not us. <laughs> yeah, I don't want one. <laughs> but other people, <laughs> yeah, need, they I have think, commitment issues, you know, to the riding. Because you just yeah, got to ride actually that thing. I think I've had more horses go down with me than I've been tossed off of. How, how many yeah. saddles have you gone off with? Have you had that happen where you were doing fine? The it was saddle, your cinch that kind of gave up no, the ghost. No, I, I had no. Ben, I got to tell you, I don't. I have not experienced that. No. You know uh, what I've done? You're in for a treat. Is I, no, I, yeah. I, no. Well, I, if, if my wife wants to get rid of me, I always check my girth twice before I even get on because <laughs> I think, yes. I The thing that gets me the most um, is you get some son-of-a-gun horse that has, has been out to pasture for like the last three years, 
and it's like putting a saddle on a 55 gallon barrel. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you might not get bucked off, but like there's one time I had a horse who's just, he was just a fat little son of a gun, but he's pretty broke. And I was literally just, and he was tall and I was opening and closing a gate and I went to reach down and latch that gate and just never came back up. Just just slid right off the horse, and he stood there the whole time. He never moved. <laughs> he never moved. Oh. But I just slid right off of him and hit the ground. Not that was probably. Oh, I'm glad that is not documented anywhere. You just documented it. I know. You just documented it. But that's yeah. okay. But it but would still that, be that. I will be a say in cool my TikTok video. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> leave it to Mark. TikTok. Yeah. So I to bring Mark, up TikTok on the on the podcast. Yeah, I didn't so expect that. I, that's. <laughs> I had to explain to you like how this podcast worked because Mark thought for a second we were doing like a live radio show. Yeah. But also, you know what TikTok is like. That's a pretty like pick and choose your modern technology. We could wrap it. (laughs) So you didn't know podcast. Yeah. Did did well. I I have to tell you guys one of the things. So Celeste, I know your dad is Mm -hmm. on um, Facebook. Yeah, I am on zero social media, zero intentionally. That's um, awesome. And I, it's part of it is just my, I don't know. I mean, part of it is that I'm on the phone or on email or on the computer all the time when I'm not traveling, and people know how to find me. The last thing I want to do is give them another method to find me. Yeah, uh, and I'm just, which you know, I'm. I'm not antisocial. I just, I, I, you know, I've got, there are enough paths to find me and it <laughs> takes enough time that I don't need another super right. highway of craziness to, to get a hold of me. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, before we sense. go too, um, too into this part, I wanted to go back to when you were talking about um, taking some of the steroidal therapy out and using more of these regenerative um therapies and things modalities yeah. therapies yeah. um because so the guy that works well the guy that owns the ranch here that i'm based out of he's an orthopedic surgeon and he's uh, uh, 68 on people you know so he's kind of of that age group and so i get to hear about that a lot you know he loves to say you know if you're if you're alive you know some sooner or later if you live long enough something's going to break or you're going to get arthritis or something's going to happen to you um he's the worst guy to go ask for advice about a medical issue because he's going to pretty much say, well, it's, uh, you're just approaching your death, you know, eventually. So <laughs> get over <laughs> nice. it, you know, get over and it. And that'll be a hundred. Yeah. Just write the check to me. Yeah. It's a hundred bucks. But it seems like that that's the advice. conversation a little bit with a uh, human, uh, in the human medical world is, is doing the same thing is trying to use less drugs and steroids and things and, and implementing PRP and these other practices. But it's interesting to hear some of the older doctors who, um, like some who are very, I wouldn't just say open-minded, but they're studying a lot or always reading the latest um, things that come out. And so you can see that they're thinking about it and they're open to them. And then some of them have an idea or they, they're just of the mindset from when they became a doctor and they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know about all that stuff. And so it's neat for me. Like I'm not a doctor at all, um, but I listen to a lot of stuff and I'll hear these things. So I'll be like, Oh, that's really cool. That, that sounds great. And then you take that to an older doctor kind of from, it's not, I, w- I don't know. I wouldn't want to say they're older school or anything, but 
yeah, it's just a different mindset. And they kind of go, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, they haven't proven that yet. And you're like, yeah, but the stuff you guys are doing doesn't seem that smart either. So even if no, it hasn't it, been proven yet, it might be here in the next couple of years. And, and same with CBD right. and the uses of that right. application. And, and there are, you know, there are a lot of flash in the pan modalities and it's really hard for horse owners or just people in general to separate out the detritus from what is fact because marketing, social media, all this stuff. I mean, it drives a lot of these decisions that people make about their health, about their animal's health. Um, and I guess I view it as, you know, people like me that try to separate the wheat from the chaff and say, you know, here's, we, we this is what you've, you know, you got to stop. We, we had, we used to have a saying at, at school. I mean, it was like, you know, no animal should die without the benefits of steroids, um, which kind of sounds like what your old, uh, older physician did that, you know, it was just kind of the, it was just kind of the mindset. Um, and yeah, there's new things coming all the time, but to try to find the things that are truly relevant and truly beneficial with all the marketing, all the social media, all the noise that's out there, it's really hard. And, you know, I'll, I'll you know, the stuff I see online sometimes, you know, people are saying, and, and this is even in equine veterinarians, there's mm -hmm. the AAEP has a listserv. I got off of it because it was a lot of these older people that were just saying stuff. I go, that that's just wrong. I mean, it's just, but, you know, somebody else reads it and goes, ooh, that seems like a good idea. I'm going to get some rhinoceros urine and rub it on my horse's hoof because it'll stop laminitis. <laughs> yeah, that's... So, yeah, and that and doesn't I know take you guys rocket scientists to kind of think. No, like, but... I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. that's just... But I know you guys had a really a, a good conversation with Travis Burns about yeah. the whole state of veterinary medicine. And it's, you know, we're on the equine side we're at a tipping point right now because none of the students want to go into equine. Really? They just don't. Hmm. Uh, there's lots of reasons. Part of it is work-life balance. Part of it is the millennials don't want to work that hard. I'll be very frank. They just don't want to work that hard. Um, and, at least on the equine, not so much on the companion animal side, but definitely on the equine side. Uh, and this is, I'm going to go back to when you were asking me about it, but this was probably 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, this would have been, I graduated high school in 2013. Okay. So, so yeah. It's, about 10 years it's ago. It's about 10 years. We are now at the tipping point in equine medicine because none of the new students want to go into it. I think, again, I know Travis did touch on this, so I don't want to repeat the whole thing, but um, it's a challenge. And the, the profession, the practice owners are still, and again, I've used this before, there are a lot of older white guys like your physician boss ben yeah oh and, and he's a uh, great he guy boss? and and he's more open-minded oh, yeah, than some and what i find cool about him is a lot of times because i'm i'll come up with these harebrained ideas and i'll and i'll try things out and i'm i'm very experimental and then initially he kind of goes yeah you know this is coming from ben the horse trainer so he's going yeah i don't know man 
and then three or four days later, he's like, so, so what was that study about again? And it's, it's really neat to see. He's much huh, more okay. open-minded than some, but I can tell that he's coming from this textbook of like, this is the way it'll work. And actually, this will give you some confidence to tell your patients kind of how it is. And then, hey, right. at least, you know, you know this to be true. And now it's off of you. It's not your responsibility if it doesn't really Correct. work. Right. Hmm. Now, they had, when I was at the university, we would have in every class, it varied, but between 10 and 15 students out of 100 or 110 that were going to track equine. And then there was another cluster that were kind of tracking equine, but also took a, a you know kind of a minor in in uh, companion animals. So they were kind of splitting it. Gotcha. Now, any class, and and this is all vet schools across the country, they'll maybe get two or three equine trackers in the class. That's hmm. it. And single females, I mean, they just. You know, and, and a lot of it is, this goes way back to, you know, a decade, decades ago where equine veterinarians would pay their interns uh, 30000 a year. Mm. This is after generally eight years of education. I'm sorry, it's bullshit. Uh, but, you know, that's, to pay yeah. them 30000 a year, you can bleep that out or whatever, but... Um, no, I, I mean, I agree. It, I mean, it was, and so, and a lot of them would just say, you know, for them, for the, the practice owners, it was cheap labor. They didn't think about these folks that had massive student debt. They didn't think of all they wanted was cheap labor. A lot of them, some of them, they're part of an internship is it's supposed to be a learning experience. Well, they just give them the truck keys and a cell phone or a pager early on and say, you know, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And they would run the roads. They would do the emergency. Jeez. And it was hard. And after a year or two of that, they just say the hell with this. Right. And because there's a lot of a lot to that that you don't learn in a classroom. Well, this is something else I used to tell the students all the time. Well, actually, I should tell you, I had a little when I would do uh, or my we would the faculty would come in and we'd have to do little orientation talks for the students. And my thing is that I'm going to come in here. I'm going to give you three words I said if you want to survive this curriculum cooperate and graduate I said that's it I said they're going to have professors that are going to say white another one's going to say black who's ever asking the exam questions you got to answer it that way so just cooperate and graduate well it's it's kind of different now I mean the students are you know, they're more engaged they're making decisions and a lot of their decisions are based on what their classmates or people that have graduated ahead of them and a lot of them are just getting out of the equine profession they're not making enough money yeah uh their hours are horrible uh and you know it's just it's the emergency work and i'll be very frank with you and that was one of the reasons i didn't immediately dismiss pfizer was i was just getting burnt out uh, yeah. and i think it was actually well I can tell you this. So I, I used to have the phone right next to my side of the bed and we would be on call for like three week stretches. So 21 days is how long we'd be on clinics as a senior. So we had residents and interns and then the students. So there was this kind of hierarchy, but if they 
during that three-week period, it varied depending in the springtime. I'd have to come in more often, but it just varied. But usually a couple, two or three times a week, I'd have to go in after hours. And, you know, a lot of times when I was going in after hours, the phone would ring at two or three in the morning. And I just got used to grabbing the phone and answering and say, okay, what's going on? And uh, Celeste said this one night, the phone rang at whatever, it was two or three in the morning. And she said, I was snoring. She said, you started, the phone rang and she said, you started dropping the F bomb, like one word after another. And then you picked up the phone and said, Hey, what's going on? And I said, no way. I wasn't doing that. that. She like said, yes. Yeah. She said, yes, you were, you were swearing like a drunk sailor. Um, and that, you know, it just indicate I, I just got tired of going in and usually when mm. they called us in, so that meant, you know, the student, the interns and the residents couldn't handle what was in there. So usually it was a, a, you know, a 2000 pound draft horse that was neurologic and down in the trailer. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, or, no, I believe you. or something, you know, sometimes it'd be, we'd get two really sick foals that would come in at the exact same time. It's just stuff that, you know, the, the normal after hours crew couldn't handle that. So I'd have to, you know, come in and take over and, you know, get yeah. people sorted out. Uh, when I was started at tech at the university, I, I, you could I, you could function. I mean, if I got called in at three in the morning and then had an 8 a.m. lecture, it didn't matter all that much. I was younger. I was friskier. I didn't care. Now I. I care. That's why I like my CBD oil and I just sleep. Uh, so yes, after a while you just do burnout on the emergency on the companion animal side, these students are coming out. Most of it's gone corporate and veterinary medicine is definitely going corporate. All these mm. huge, uh, Mars, you know, you guys have heard of Mars. Is like that the same candy? company like as the, the Mars can- bar? They had a big horse it's operation this, in Kentucky, and- right? Way back they in the had day. big horror. Yep, it's they've got it's privately held, but they have now. I mean, they, they own all kinds of stuff. They have a whole equestrian division. They've got. Do, do you know Bridget McIntosh? Do you know she? Was I one? I know that name. She I did don't... her PhD actually here at Tech oh, okay. with David Cronfeld. But anyway, she worked at. I've the, seen that name on like Facebook and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, she worked at the Mayor Center. In okay. Middleburg, and then, but the, 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 the basically politics drove her out. But one of her really good friends was, I think it was Laura Mars, who is one of the matriarchs of the whole Mars Foundation, created a position mm. for her, and she is head of Mars Equestrian. It's huge. I mean, they, it's crazy. But the moral of the <laughs> story is they are buying, and not just Mars, there's a whole cluster of. Uh, a significant cluster of these um, uh, investors that see veterinary medicine as an untapped resource. So they're buying all these practices for big money, but they're making big money. So all these practices are going now it's, it was it's kind of like, well, I mean, we don't need to talk about our business, but our friend Janet, like her that, that practice got bought out. Bought right? out by that, that to me is kind of the textbook example. Exactly. So that's yeah. what they're doing. So, but there was Banfield. There were a whole bunch of these things. Anyway. Yeah. But they have made. There are some not so good ones, but most of them are pretty decent because they understand if you want to make money, don't go in and like start changing policy and all this. You want to keep people happy and keep them productive. Um, 
so most of them on the companion animal side, it's four day work weeks. They get no emergency because there are specialty emergency clinics. So they, you know, they'll work four days mm -hmm. and get three day weekends, no emergency. You're like and, a damn dentist. <laughs> well, but the beauty of it is a lot of these kids love horses and they went into veterinary medicine because they loved horses. But when they got into it, they realized if I go into equine practice, I am never going to see my horse ever. So, but if I go into companion animal, I make a lot more money and I get to see my horse every day and mm -hmm. I get to ride them all the time. So there's been this big shift in their quality of life. Um, you know, their whole work-life balance and they get to enjoy their horses. So it's, but the equine side, it's, you know, we're there. I see little tiny intention moves where they're starting to raise their salaries a little bit. They're starting to form like little groups that will like share emergency duty. So people aren't on like three or four nights a week, but it's almost too late. Yeah. I mean, they have to, the, the switches come. The other thing is, and you guys aren't going to like this, but I've told them, oh, let me go back to give you the historical perspective. What equine vets used to do was they would charge, so they wouldn't charge much for their service, for uh -huh. their brains. They would charge for the drugs. So if you get, a, you know, a, a bottle of butte that costs fifty bucks, they would charge a hundred or one hundred and fifty. Mm -hmm. So make up for the man hours. Right. They were double, and and if the clients complained about it, they would just say it's the evil pharma companies that are doing all this so they made their money on the pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. um but that's changed now because there's chewy pet meds farm vet farm vet you name <laughs> it so they're all so they cut that whole thing all this over-the-counter market that has cut out the vets blaming it on the evil pharma because you know you could charge them 15 dollars for a tube of ivermectin where they could go on you know, one of these sites and get the same thing for three bucks or two bucks or whatever. Yeah. So that went out, but they seem to be having, there's an issue with them charging for actually for their time. You know, the, that's what it's got to be. So the moral of the story is equine veterinarians are going to, if they, they need to pay their employees, their associates, their interns more they're going to have to raise their prices because they cannot blame it on the pharma companies anymore. Uh, and that's, which means that horse owners are going to have to pay more for these services, which translate into some other issues because with so few people going into equine medicine now, uh, what's going to happen is they won't have people to, the practices won't have people to cover all the bases and they will not have any emergency services. So, you know, they're going to be driving two or three hours to a referral hospital, uh, which will charge them. So it's, like I said, the tipping point has many potential fulcrums in it, many potential tips, uh, tipping areas. But the owners are going to have mm. to pay more for equine prices. The cattle side of the equation is interesting because I'm, you know, 
it's yeah and ben you're you, you kind of have an idea that i mean the drugs are inexpensive the vets don't charge a lot because it's a production animal which has never been a problem on the companion animal side uh, because people will pay anything to fix Fifi or Rin Tin Tin or whatever. Uh, you guys probably don't know who Rin Tin Tin is, do you? Uh, yeah, I do. That's all right. Yeah. Okay, oh, cool. Yeah. I yeah, make these no, vague that. antique references sometimes, and I forget. You know who Trigger is. Oh, like. yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. And Silver. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, they're just... It, so this is it's a cascade yeah. of events that are that are going to take place and there's going to be some wicked adjustments if they're going to survive now you know at the american association of equine practitioners is the aaep which is our overarching kind of uh organization now they have committees and now they have groups to try to address these problems yeah but the moral of the story like i said they should have been doing this 10 years ago um and I'm like I said, I, I hope they can get out of it. But if we still only have, you know, all these colleges only have two students or three students at track equine every year. And remember, it takes four years for them to get through school, plus another couple of years to get their boots on the ground. There's not going to be enough. Yeah. Uh, which is ultimately going to be a problem. So it, and it is there are almost lethal signs of the problem now it's just going to get worse so yeah anyway i'll that, get off my soapbox that uh that leads no, that's right into interesting. something yeah that leads right into something i wanted to talk to you about because uh i always viewed veterinarians um as medical professionals kind of in the way i had viewed doctors and of course they are medical you all are medical professionals but um i kind of viewed doctors as a just a different class of people and so as i've come into more of a professional uh, role in the equine industry being around veterinarians has been a lot of fun like i've met a lot of very humble very knowledgeable people and we have a great um, group of veterinarians around us here that i get to work with in the cattle and the horse industry and i've had them on several occasions you know really try to show me what they're doing and then later on, I've, you know, I'll call them about something we have an issue with. And um, I, I had one vet say, hey, um, you know, this is what, uh, well, this was with cattle. He's like, here, this is what that cow needs. But uh, if you feel comfortable doing it, could you do it? You know, it'd save me the trip out there. And same yeah. with horses. I had a horse the other day get cut up and I hauled it up to our vet. And she's just a nice lady. She's like our friend first and a vet second. And, um, so I told her, I brought this horse up there, and it had a really clean gash. So she's shaving the hair and cleaning it up, getting ready to sew it up. And I said, when I first saw that gash, the first thing I thought of was that staple gun we have in the cow shed. And she goes, oh, yeah. She laughed. And she said, well, you know, anything on the legs. And she told me a few areas anywhere here. You know, you need to bring it to me. But you get something on the face right. or somewhere where there's not a lot of movement and the blood flows not crazy she was like go for it and she was showing me how to shave the hair and, and clean works. up the wound no. and get my sutures out and i just thought that was really cool because i grew up around um you know doctors who were very they were almost hesitant to share too much information sort of like if they knew enough latin they probably would have liked to speak more of it <laughs> right. i thought that was hilarious yeah. what you said about them in poland and um because there's this thing about 
you've got to keep the prestige. Uh, we were just talking about it the other night with some people about um, just the prestige doctors used to have in the old days in a town where if you were a doctor, you know, there was the doctor, there was a lawyer, and there was a teacher. There was a few people that had this education that was above everybody else. And then the rest of them were, you were kind of beholden to that doctor or that lawyer or whoever had the education you didn't. And so it's funny to be around doctors now, and they're they're kind of like that. They they treat you as if they have this knowledge that you don't have, and they do. I mean, no doubt, a lot of times they do. Yeah. But I've found that around veterinarians. I mean, you guys have gone through extensive schooling and training, but there's this humility, and I don't know if you find that among the majority of you them, know, ben, but the ones I've had the pleasure of being around, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and it's fun to ask them questions and learn from them. And that spirit of, um, it's like they're trying to pass some things on. They Obviously, they want work, but they want you to know something, too, for when they're not there. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting. So um, uh, just one of the big practices, that, I don't know if you knew Mark Wallace. He was one of our residents. He's got a big practice down in Carolina, Carolina North Carolina. Um, and I asked them, there's probably five, veterinarians in the practice and I said you know how how bad is your emergency coverage and he said you know it's really not bad at all because number one we spend a lot of time educating our clients number two we focus on herd health so we make sure that all our horses that are in our practice in our herd health program all are appropriately dewormed. They all are well vaccinated. They all have dental exams every year. So they spend a lot of time educating their clients and making, following all the rules for good, solid, basic herd health, all the things that are mandatory um, or essential, I should say. And so he says, as a result of that, we don't see a lot of emergencies at all. Uh, so it's not bad. And, and, and I, I will be honest with you, a lot of these, you know, when I was, when I first came to Virginia, um, there was only one other veterinarian in the area. Um, oops. Um, there was only one other veterinarian in the area. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> basically I was doing ambulatory. So I went from being a total academic baby in the clinic, in the hospital all the time. So I spent four or five years driving around in a truck. Uh, and most of the call, we were, if you were on call for a weekend, like starting Friday at five, you were lucky if you got home Monday morning. I mean, you were out all the time. Hmm. And a lot of it was just people that, didn't have a regular vet. They'd call you for a train wreck. I could sit here and regale you guys with horror stories for hours now of just the stuff that we saw out there. Um, but the university, and part of it was the university. So they didn't have a regular vet, and they knew the university had to take everybody. The university doesn't do that anymore. They, yeah. will, only, they will only go to emergency for regular clients. And most practices now have just ruled those people out. But, that, you know, I would get people that had watched their horse colic for three or four days and then call oh. me at midnight on a Sunday. Mm. You know, you'd go because you felt horrible for the animal. 
and I just wanted to slap the owners around, uh, which you can't really do. Uh, but it was it. So you know, again, that whole bottom. But you know, you get into Southwest Virginia, you get into backwoods Franklin and Giles County, and some of these areas, West Virginia. We would have actually people we wouldn't go to West Virginia. They would drive their horses to the clinic because they just did not have a veterinarian. So, yeah. Well, especially that Southern part of West Virginia, it's not super veterinarian. Dense no. Any and, means. and they're not because there's no money there. You know, there's just, yeah. they, they've got to go where the money is. Well, so. and, and people don't call the vet, like you said, unless it's been a tragedy right. for three days going, and, but, and then they decide to do something but then, about it. Uh, Usually every year I go down to Wellington, down in Florida, and mm. Bendy. Well, they probably drive by through Macon on their way to Wellington. They probably you know, drive right past on seventy-five. Yeah. So, have you ever been down to Wellington? Not yet. For the winter meet, it's it's actually, it's almost worth it to go, uh, just to see because that is. Have Have you been down there at all? No. Uh, Kaylee's actually going to try to show there this winter. Okay. So I I am. I'm fixing to go. Is hopefully. she taking your checkbook or her checkbook? Well, th- we're sorting that part out. Still. Okay, um, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely it's the the one percenters are down there, but those horses get so those horses, for example, they get pro stride, which isn't cheap. Uh, depending on the practice, like one session that I told you about, where they'll inject it into joints, it may run five hundred dollars. But if it's the only thing you're doing for a year, that, you know, I tell people, look, this makes a lot of sense. Um, but those horses will get pro stride every three or four months, whether they need it or not. It's just, it's all preventative. But that that is that is the Disney world of, you know, the, the Vegas of the horse universe. Yeah. It's crazy. It's worth it just to go see it because, you know, when you see... Uh, you know the the right the my uh, funny story. My um, one of my doctors that I go see. He's a, he's a good friend too, really good guy. And his daughter is totally wrapped up. She spends all of daddy's money on the horse stuff, and she shows down in Wellington. It's years ago. She went down there. She was in her early teens, uh, and she went down. And he she always has very nice horses. And she her dad called her up and said, you know, how are things going? Her. She goes, yeah. She says, it's really nice. There's a lot of nice people down here. I met this girl today. Her name is, I think, Jessica something spring something. I don't know what. And he goes, "Uh, Springsteen? And she goes, yeah, yeah, that's it. He said, do you know who that is? She goes, well, she said her dad was in a band or something. She that's the (laughs) boss. That's the dude. And she didn't know. So... That's the kind of people that yeah. are down there. Yeah, I know Jeff Bezos, yeah. his daughter, I believe his daughter and is it Mark Zuckerberg? Somebody's two of yep. them have a daughter that compete at a high level, and I've I would really like to try to sell oh, them Bill on Gates. the brand them in horsemanship Bill, and get them to send a couple horses here, and you know there you go. Yeah, we could build a it's, house uh, just for them when they come. We could do whatever it took. Yeah. If you guys are listening, yep, we will roll yeah. out the red carpet. All the way down the driveway. It's no. about a mile long. We'll do it. You guys will <laughs> <Yeah>. come. <laughs> but I mean, that'd be know, the ticket, the, right? For a, for yeah, someone in the horse the industry to hop on board with somebody no like kidding. that. 
and there's a, a bunch of the practices that I work with. They usually, you know, they'll have clients that are in that eventing showing circles and they, they move right down to, um, right down to Wellington for the, the whole winter. And that's all they do. They just take care of their clients. They're usually very wealthy clients, horses. But again, this is, you, we're talking to one percenters. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, it's so that, this is a good opportunity to talk about this. Um, we do normally on the show, we have our guests do a Mount Rushmore of whatever. So you, you understand the concept Mount Rushmore, like you got a bunch of presidents, you got to pick four, right? Oh, I thought you wanted me to get stoned and put my face up on a rock somewhere. Okay. Oh. <laughs> no, we do that afterwards, well, I, and then we post pictures yeah, tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. we. Yeah, we we hit the stop button on the recording, and that's the next part. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um. So yeah. So like your Mount Rushmore. Um. So you know, for example, like people could have like their Mount Rushmore of NFL quarterbacks or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So you probably more than any other person I know um, between your uh, gallivanting as a, as a younger man and now your job um, where you travel quite a bit through the United States and internationally. I want your Mount Rushmore of horse facilities. So, horse facilities. So it could be a showgrounds. It could be a farm. It could be whatever. But it would be your top four that you've seen. And, and to give people some context, I mean, you, you've been obviously all over the United States, Europe, you've been to Asia, yeah, the I, Middle East quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, well, the, Dubai is on the list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, if you could pick your top four that you've seen and, and gone to, um, I'd be super interested to hear that. Well, okay. I'm glad you reminded me. So the Dubai is is going to be number one because so when you say dubai what so where exactly the sh so there are two so dubai is basically five emirates it's the it's the uae or the united arab emirates which is mm -hmm. like a mini united states mm -hmm. so there are the two big ones that you know you all know dubai which is one of the emirates mm -hmm. uh and Sharjah is another one but there are sheikhs that it's they're all kind of related but they're shakes that families that ha all have horses yeah they all have so um and there were a couple over there that i went to there was one they're they're big into um racing um uh race they race their arabs they race thoroughbreds but they race their arabs yeah endurance so and they, yeah, that's a big deal. Big deal on endurance. So just one of the stables, and I think this was in Sharjah. Actually, I'd have to remember, but they had a lap pool for their horses when they worked them out. I, now, I'm not going to overestimate here, but that sucker was easily a hundred yards long, maybe long. The pool. The pool. The pool. <laughs> I have pictures of it on my phone. I mean, you get if I'm standing at one end, you can barely see the other end. And there's they have grooms that were just walking there. So it's narrow. and working these Arab like the yeah, endurance so the, the horses. The pool was forth. probably maybe a little bit wider than this room, but it was allowed for two ways. So they would walk on the side and just 
lead the horses so they would swim. The barns, uh, you know, and again, it's all part of the family, and I don't remember which shake or whatever, but they would have chandeliers. In the, it, was, it was obscene excess. Yeah. That's the only way yeah. I can describe it. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, there were a couple over there that I saw. I'm just trying to think. The, uh, you know, there's there's another one, and this wouldn't go into well. There's several in Kentucky, like Calumet. Some of these farms are mm-hmm. a lot of history. Hanover Shoe. I spent a lot of time at that. It's a it's the old. Sta- it's a huge standard bread farm up in just outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And it's a gorgeous old farm. It's old. I mean, it's not like you wouldn't walk into it. You look at it and you go, wow, it's cool, but it's old. Yeah. Um, historic. It's, it's That's the word. That's I'm the, Thank that's you, Joe. The, it's very, very historic. Yeah, the, the um, better word for Yeah, old it's stuff. they have this farm. They fall out 500 mares a year. 500 mares. In, in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Holy mackerel. Yeah, 500 a year. Uh, I got, and the, they had one, they tried to keep two vets there. It was hard, but this was probably five or six years ago. This is an interesting little story. They, um, The farm was several thousand acres. Um and the, you know they had like they had a place where the yearlings would go. They had the main barns. They had the stallion barns. I mean, it was all just these, but big. I mean, like yeah, there were. So they fall huge, out, especially huge. for the eastern United States. It was huge. Yeah. Uh, so this was probably. I'm thinking it was probably six years ago. They called me up, and they said, "Mark, we have a problem." We are having a strangles outbreak on the farm. Uh, this farm did not vaccinate for strangles. The owners mm. of the farm had rescued a couple of horses at an Amish auction. Remember I told you about how I ticked those boxes off when I broke my foot all the pieces? Dumb white guy, old white guy stuff. Owners rescuing some Amish horses. That's ticking box number one. Uh, But they did have them in an isolated paddock that was kind of near one of, there were many entrances to this farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they had them like right kind of off in a corner away from the main farm. And the instructions were that the groom and they, and I will also qualify this, that most, the majority of the grooms were not, native English speakers. Hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Um, But they were very fluent in Spanish. Uh, So they were told, this one particular gentleman was told, last thing out on the end of the day, feed and take care of those horses on your way out. Well, apparently he didn't understand why and just thought he could shorten his day a little bit by taking care of them on his way in. And then going to the farm, mm. taking care of everything else. So one of the horses, after a couple of weeks, started to get a swollen lymph node, started draining from its, you know, from its one of its nostrils, pus, and 
they cultured strangles. Strep equi. So have you guys ever dealt with a strangles case or seen horses with strangles? I've like I've never had horses with strangles, but I've seen like I know what it looks like, yeah. How about you, Ben? Yeah, have you just, run into it? Uh I've heard of the neighbors had it one time, but I never saw the horse. And then I've seen pictures. That's the closest I've gotten to it. Yeah, it it's it, it is horribly contagious. Um it's not aerosol. Well, actually, they do know that face flies can carry the organism. Um, but anyway, it gets into a naive population, and literally all hell breaks loose. So what they did was the they when they got they started to see a couple of cases on the main farm, mm-hmm. so they knew that the feces was hitting the rotary device. You can leave that in. Yeah. Um, we know that one. You uh, know that one. Buck Brandman says that. Oh, does he really? Quite a bit, yeah. He copied that from me. He says he says fecal matter hits the rotary oscillator. He says when oh, the, okay. defecation, the, oscillator. the defecation de- hits the defecation. rotary oscillator. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's modified. He's, I, he's, he's going the same direction, but y'all are in different lanes. Different, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, the feces hits the rotary device. They went to the far end of the farm and started vaccinating the yearlings. Then they called me, and the first thing I said was, stop vaccinating. You, you must stop now because it's the, vaccinating in the face of an outbreak for strangles is super dangerous. Because uh, it's kind of just courting, making it worse, right? Well, I'll, I'll explain what happens in a second, but I need to go through. So anyway, the, the, <laughs> what happened was it got into the farm, um, and this was during foaling season, which also coincides with breeding season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, at this farm, I told you five, they would have days where they would have 10, 15 foals drop on the ground in one day in a 24 hour period. I mean, that it, it's, it's a big farm. Yeah. Uh, it's so a lot, of foals. a lot of foals. So they're running around breeding. They're trying to figure out. And so they called all these strangles professors and they said, well, you know, if you see, you need to go in and, you know, hit these horses with procaine penicillin. Have you guys ever given a penicillin injection to a horse? Mm-mm. I haven't. Wow, good. You guys are really lucky. Um, that before some of these <laughs> newer drugs. Came. Oh, I mean that stuff. I, I mean, it, you can get the first one in, but the second one, the horse is going to kill What's you. Is that a big you needle? Give it to them. It's a big needle and it's a lot of volume, so it's mm. it's basically. And is it where do you give the? Injection? Usually, you can give it in the neck or in the semi mem, semi tendon, in the glutes. Yep, back there. <sighs> Uh, yeah, this, yeah, the second dose that they'll usually, and it hurts the, the horses will, they will kick the living bejesus out of you. <laughs> um, and to do it twice a day uh, with all these horses coming down with it, it just, it was not going to happen. So, uh, we kind of figured out a system where these horses were in paddocks of 20. I did get them to say, okay, you got to tempt these horses at least once a day, ideally twice, you know, you're not doing anything. And as soon as a horse spikes a fever or you see a horse go off feed or whatever, pull that horse out and we'll deal with it from there. Um, so they're going around breeding. And so they had very strict biosecurity trying to in a very old farm. 
They're trying to keep their biosecurity lined up and get everybody marching in step. So the veterinarian, she's going around, and the rule was do, nothing comes into the barn and nothing comes out of the barn. So any equipment, brushes, anything like that, it's an isolated unit. So she's got a mayor out. She's got a couple of guys that are helping her. You know, one's washing her mayor up and somebody's holding the mayor and she's getting ready to palpate. And she sees one of the grooms, English, not his native language, pulls a twitch out of his back pocket and puts it on the mayor's nose. And she goes, uh, where did you get that twitch from? And he goes, my favorite twitch. And, <laughs> and she's going, I think she strung out with a string of really bad words. Uh, but that was what they were dealing with. So anyway, we eventually got it under control. Uh, they had six horses die from strangles they basically an abscess would rupture into their trachea or the abscess the lymph nodes would just compress the trachea they had another six horses that died from purpura purpura is an autoimmune disease so basically it when you have antigen antibody you've got an antigen which is the strep organism the bacteria the antibodies are what the body uses to fight it if you get too much of that interaction, it causes what we call a vasculitis. Small, so the small vessels, like in the legs or whatever, and it'll kill horses, cause laminitis. It causes can cause a whole bunch of really serious problems. But one of the big things it does is it'll just if you can save them, some of them will die uh, from this autoimmune, this immune disease. Um, they're all their skin on their legs just sloughs off. Yeah. I mean, it's the skin is gone. It's ugly. <laughs> That's gnarly. That's pretty uh, gross. One of their prime yearlings getting ready to go into the auction, she got purpura. She was, they estimated she was going to go for 150, 200,000. These are standard breads now. Yeah. So that was pretty good money. Uh, uh, I mean, any, that, th yeah, any that's, breed. That, that any breed, good that's good money. <laughs> uh, she's a brood mare now. She lived. Uh, but the moral of the story is that, and, and most of the cases, I think five of the six cases of purpura were in the barn where they vaccinated. So what you did was you gave them a modified live vaccine and I won't get into all killed and modified live and all the different types of vaccines. Well, right. cattle, you use modified live vaccines. We do. Um, and they're very good. They're very effective vaccines, but they can they cause the body to mount a pretty robust immune response. So these horses were vaccinated. They're mounting a robust immune response. And then, oh, hey, by the way, here's the real organism and their immune, their, their bodies just go crazy. Yeah. I mean, their immune systems just it's like a house of fire. It's a 10 alarm blaze. Um, so. I don't know why. I oh, but if you asked me about the Mount Rushmore right. thing, that was just an interesting little side note about that. Yeah, I thought we were going to have to bring you camera. back to that because I was going to say, look, yeah. you, you, so far though, you, you've been great. But as far as the Mount Rushmore, <laughs> you've know. done the worst. Yeah, right. giving us done, a clear, yeah, concise Mount so, Rushmore. All right. So you got. So I've got the, the, the couple of stables in Dubai. Well, no. Uh, 
Let, let's just, just pick one. the one with the long poo. Yeah, we want names. The one with the long poo. That was yeah. a big – And I honestly, I'm sorry. I can't remember the name, and I think it was in Sharjah. Uh, I think. Okay. We'll, we'll, so then we got uh, Pennsylvania. We'll let you have that. Hanover Shoe. Um, let's see. New York. Just going through a. Um, Is it, was there anything cool in it? Because I like can't even imagine what a horse facility in Asia is like. Um, I, you know, it was and interesting. Don't, Most of don't the ones make that me, I saw in Asia, yeah. and this was in Thailand. Um, they. It, it was just not a lot of space. No, well, it wasn't. It wasn't the space. They were in the country, but there were some gorgeous. But they were private owners, so they were beautiful barns. But they only would have four or five horses in them, and it, a mm. lot of it was they were ex. So it was there were a lot of French people, a lot of British people, and a lot of Americans that have gone over there to retire because you can live like a king. The food is crazy good. It's yeah. really cheap to live there. And they all had horses, and they had beautiful, but they were small. I mean, they yeah. were like four or five, so there were no big racing stables or breeding stables. So I guess that's kind of more what what I was yeah. thinking you, of along you those wouldn't, lines. You wouldn't put it on your Mount Rushmore. No, I wouldn't put it on my Mount. I'd, I'd put so, it on a so mini Rushmore. Two, so, two more. Uh, <laughs> just, wow. This is, I've been in, uh, that's the problem. That's the point I, of Mount Rushmore is they're I, supposed I've to be difficult. Been in, too many different stables and barns um and there could be like some i mean you could have been to like some cool ass ranch or something too like it doesn't have to be like just the the building so, you know what i mean yeah or uh, or europe some crazy yeah farm. i was gonna say janus podlaski the the stable that i had my first arab experience with in poland mm -hmm. is really historical um and it is yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I bet, like, way more so than anything Yeah, here. I mean, it's hundreds of years old. Yeah. Um, the stables are set up, it, it was interesting, the stables were set up very differently. Like, they would bring, they didn't have a lot of horse. they were mainly out on pasture, but they would bring them in every day. And it was, the horses knew that they were coming in. And the barns were like these huge, open I don't even know how to describe it. Just these very high ceiling, lots of, you know, old hand-hewn beams, but big. And the rooms were Yeah, ginormous. like an old, like like almost like those old medieval churches. Co correct, yeah. like that. And the only thing that separated the horses was they would just have, like, a pole. So they there was a, a perm. Oh, I, I, I thought of another one, too. In the okay, Lipizan, well, you got one more spot. The Lipizan or the stables in Austria. Austria? Oh, my. God. Yeah, I just thought of that too. They had actually their mangers yeah. were marble. Yeah, I was thinking if <laughs> you had there, that you, that would be on your list. Somewhere oh my in there. gosh! I mean, that yeah. was the that was crazy. That was the, so marble. again historical. Really I want I want to see that. That's you, on my. You need to go list. there and see because even like yeah. their their exercise arena, people would just kill to have their exercise because it's gorgeous. I mean, yeah. it was old. But the stables in Poland, they weren't, they weren't like the Dubai. They didn't have chandeliers hanging right. and brass and you know all this fancy stuff. Um, but they kind of harkened back to a different era. Yeah, it did. So, it, but the, it was funny. So the, this thing that separated the, their eating, their stalls, were just like two poles that would come out, mounted on the side of the manger, and just come out and hit hit the ground. So they were maybe. 10, 15 feet long. Yeah. And the mayors with their foals all knew their spot. 
Yeah. So there'd be like 20 of them mm-hmm. that would just come and they'd race in from the, I just remember I said, oh my, I mean, they were like full pedal to the metal. You already said they were Arabs. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I didn't need to qualify that anymore. They'd race in, they'd all go to their little compartments yep. in this big open kind of cathedral like area. They'd all get their grain. The nice. foals would all, and the and that was oh the other the weaning process that they did over there, which I always thought was pretty cool. What they would do um, is they would have like ten or fifteen mares and foals in a field. Okay, mm-hmm. so depending on their breeding, so when they and they would wean usually around four or five months somewhere in there, and every day they but they were kept in groups. Okay when they went in and fed, when they were on paddock, whatever they were doing. And every day they would come in and they'd take one mare out. That was it. That foal would scream a little bit, but he had a bunch of buddies and he had other mares he was running in. Then two hmm. days later, they'd come out and take another mare out. And that, that's how they did till they ended up with one grandma mare in there. And the, the, there was like no stress on the babies at all. No kidding. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, they just no stress. So, yeah. but, all right, so if, the, if you're the first mare that comes out, where do you end up? Where does it, they, back to the stud, back to the, to the daddy. <laughs> yeah, that, where oh, that okay. mare ends up. Yeah, so she leaves. She, yeah. So she, it's no, not like putting stress on her either. No, though. no. She just goes to another paddock. And, they, and yes, there's obviously, there's going to be a little prying. Well, it's, it's not the calves you have to wean most of the time. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So they're just pulling these mares out and it was it was the most stress-free really cool way to do it. that is interesting that they just never you know there was never a lot of screaming yeah, that, and crying and and so they do it like you know what you got it was over 30, a month or two yeah, yeah they over, would just pull them yeah just over one mare months. would come out and, and but because of the the group dynamics mm-hmm. that they were all together and the foals they were just foals together, you know. It's like yeah. kids in kindergarten, first, second grade, you know. Yeah. Now I wouldn't go take their mommy away and take their mommy to another place, kindergarten right. kids. But that twenty four seven, they were with them. And yeah. even when the mayors were in there, and these, these, they had a, you know, they were really deeply bedded with straw. It was super clean. And when the mayors were in there eating, there was like a big area, like a romper room in the middle. So when the mayors are packing their grain, the babies were all racing around in the middle of this thing, or they'd be in with their mother, or they'd go in with another mayor. I mean, it was a totally Hmm. social system. Yeah, but probably not dissimilar to like if you were to see like a wild horse herd, you know, like like if everyone's eating – and the babies are intermingling and running right. around doing all that other stuff, so. which that is interesting because, like, I mean, like the big, and and we're we're working on wrapping up, so we're not going to go down yeah, like was, another uh, tangent or whatever. Um, wow, I've been talking a lot. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> oh, you've been doing <laughs> you good, can, Mark. This is this you is can a yeah, great a lot podcast. Of this out. No, yeah. no, um, it'll all make it on there. But you know, every bit of it. <laughs> yeah, but like. You know, from from what I understand, never been there, but like Eastern Europe has a big horse culture because it is like the western part of the steppe. Like there, yeah, Asian no, steppe. that was that. I so mean, they yes. probably took that system in some ways from seeing those, yeah, those wild horses 
do that. So, and it's just been, you know, and it's, generation, hundreds you know, and hundreds and of when years. When I was first there, I mean, I was cracking up because there were, the horses were work. I mean, they yeah. were, it's kind of like the Amish here. When you go to Amish country, their horses were plowing the fields. Their, you yeah. know, their wagons, they had these funny wagons that they'd hitch these. There were times I go. So communism good for horses then? Uh, communism was good for horses. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, it, you'd see some crazy stuff at night. They had so they'd be on the roads with their wagons, kind of like the Amish are. Yeah. But they would go so the farmers would load up their wagons, their big work wagons, and they'd have a couple of semi kind of drafty horses. The Arabs weren't doing that. And there were yeah. times I remember trying to when I was driving somewhere over there, I'd be driving down the road and i'd see like a they'd hang a lantern or something in the back of it so you didn't like crash into the back of them and they would usually have a flashlight or something and i approach this one wagon and i'm getting close to it and i'm like i'm trying to figure out what's because these horses are right in the middle of the road trotting like mad things going home because they yeah. knew which way home was and the flashlight was not pointing in the front it was like straight up in the sky and i go what the heck so i finally like kind of worked my way around it the guy he had been in town sold his stuff obviously consumed a bottle of vodka passed out <laughs> on the front seat and the flat and he's just like laid out oh, horses trotting down the middle of the road with his flashlight pointed straight up in the air and i said nobody's gonna believe that but that's you know yeah He's going to get home. The horses he are going to go right DD into the stable. For him. His wife is going to come out and beat oh, the junk yeah. out of him because those women were huge. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those old bopchies, they were, uh, yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they'd take you out. So Mark, anyway. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slip in right here. So I think that that is a great story to end on. And I think we left plenty of material for maybe another podcast in the future with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can make I can make up. You're stuff gonna have to fast. come back. Can, yeah. yeah, it's been well, an absolute every, blast. When you retire, or or like you know, uh, since am, that probably won't happen. I'm gonna I am yeah I, I am gonna retire sometime. We well we were talking about because we want to have Travis back too. We we figure six months is the sweet spot for having a return guest. So yeah. okay, you, you got six months to either retire or you have to fit us in your schedule. Okay. Still running yeah. around. We so can do one that. or the other. Because, Ben, I got a whole lot more. We could have a whole podcast on things I've seen students do that you would not believe. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that might too. get a little dicey. You may be cutting a lot of that out. but Well, <laughs> well now, that I've, now that I've met you, I tell you what, I'm going to be taking notes in my day-to-day -day life of things to ask Mark Cushman next time I talk to him. So get yeah, ready. you can ask yeah. me whatever you want. Get ready. Ben, Maybe whatever. we can do it in person sometime. It'd, It'd be great to meet you at some point. Yeah. yeah. Ben Ben's still never been up to Blacksburg. You've never been here? Well, I've been there before, but just not since game. I've known Joe. I was born in Harrisonburg. Oh my gosh, right up the road. Yeah. 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 So I'm so a Virginian. Do you go to by birth? Do you, do you go to you are? Do you go to University of Georgia no, football games? I left or? Oh, no, I don't. I go to some high school football games because Dr. Barnes, the guy that owns this place, he he stands on the sidelines. His his ortho complex takes care of a lot of the local games. So I go to some uh, of those okay. and it's fun, but I'm right, not, cool. yeah. I'll be honest, you know, think what you want of me, but I'm not a big football fan. I just, no, I only fine. have so much bandwidth yeah. in my life and football does not fit inside of that. But, yeah. but he needs to come to tech just to like 
but he's never been to like a college football game or see Enter Sandman. Yeah, he needs to see the whole rigor, yeah. rigmarole, even if it's not the somewhere um, between the tailgating and Enter Sandman. It's, it, 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 yeah, it, it's, it's a fun show. if you've never done it. It's a show. I'd love to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he needs to just come up and and crash with me, and then we can the three of us can do a podcast together in person. Yeah, that That'd would be, be a lot good. Of fun. Instead of his sauna that he's in now, yeah. that's a cool looking Well, I'll sauna. pan it around. Yeah, it, so, yeah I'm in a saddle shop. so. Oh, okay. But we're kind of All turning right. it into a music recording studio, and I've commandeered a corner of it here to make a little podcasting studio. So, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Kind of well, like good. my little corner of my house here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <you got laughs> the well guest room. does he know your computer is sitting on a bed? Yeah, you're, the, the computer sitting on a guest bed right now. But well, you're sitting on a United States Post everything. Office box to give it a little. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Never know where you are, yeah. do you? It, it looks good. Anyway, I've well, noticed good. that with most shows you watch, it all looks good. But if you could get a guy to yeah. take a picture from, from behind all of that, it you know, yeah. they're just in some living yeah. room it's, or some bedroom It's kind of slapped together, yeah. yeah. It's like the yeah. news, right? They're anyway. sitting in front of a screen. Like I saw that the other day real quick. Joe, I think I sent that to you. It was that guy, Jack Carr. He was on uh, Fox News one night. But he ran, jogged, took a boat, um, crossed some harbor, and hopped in like a sprinter van. And then he's sitting in the sprinter van. There's a TV screen behind him. So what looks like he's with um, Tulsi Gabbard on Fox or something. And it looks like he's in one of those skyscrapers with a whole city, you know, picturesque view behind him. And he's really sitting in a sprinter van with a big, you know, 40-inch screen behind him. With a big screen behind him. Yeah. And that's 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 funny to think about it that way. All righty. Yeah. Well, great to meet you, Mark. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. You'll have to come back. Um, Yeah, I will. Good. I got more stories. Good. All righty. We'll see you guys. And Ben, you like you you like see delete you. whatever needs to be deleted. Oh, no people are going to love this. They're going to love you too. Okay. All right. Bye everyone. All right. Thanks Bye. guys.